Welcome to Sky Team's People First with Morag Barrett. Welcome to this week's episode of People First. And my guest this week is John Warrillow, who is the founder of the Value Builder System, a software program for building the value of a company used by thousands of businesses worldwide. He also supports a global network of independent advisors known as Certified Value Builders. And the Value Builder System incorporates several diagnostic tools, including the Value Builder Score. I know from my own experience in finance and in running in Sky Team, leaders start businesses rarely with the end in mind and what their exit strategy is. And what John brings is a wealth of experience with his three books, including his latest bestseller, Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You, that is going to be interest of all of us, whether we're leading a business or working within a business. John, welcome to People First. Well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So as with every episode, I always start with the way back when story and essentially the how did you get to where you are today? So flashback, you're a wee lad, you're sitting in elementary school. What did you want to be when you grew up? Gosh, I don't remember, but I think if you go to high school, I used to watch 60 Minutes, in particular, Mike Wallace, who has passed away now, as you know, but Mike Wallace used to have these interviews where he actually grilled, you know, the used car dealer who was rolling back the odometer or, you know, the insurance, you know, uh, mm-hmm. fake that it, and I used to love the way he would grill them and put them on the spot. And so I grew up wanting to be a 60 minutes interviewer. That was sort of uh, what I thought would be a great job. So you wanted to see people squirm and uh, and so forth. Well, I remember that we used to have a similar program in the UK as well that used to uncover the charlatans of business. Well, that's not who you work with now. So what was the pivot point then that took you from 60, aspiring 60 Minutes presenter and investigated journalism to what you do today? Gosh, I... I... I started off in business producing a radio show about entrepreneurs and it got me really interested in, in, in the way entrepreneurs think. And I started a research company that helped big companies understand entrepreneurs because I'd been interviewing all these entrepreneurs for this radio show. And it was funny, that business was was really what inspired my journey. I, I built it up to uh, probably $6 million in revenue. We were profitable, 20, 30% profit margins when I got a call uh, and I went to see a guy named Perry Miele. And, and I was, he was a, an M&A guy and, and I was interested in selling the company. I was, wanted to go see Perry and ask him what it was worth. And I was kind of rubbing my hands together thinking, oh, mm-hmm. it's going to be worth a fortune. And, and he said, well, first of all, let me ask you a couple of questions. You know, who does the research? And I was like, well, I'm involved in some of it. We worked with these big clients, you know, Microsoft, IBM. And he said, okay, that's fine. Who does the selling? And I said, well, I'm involved in some of the selling. And he's like, okay, John, let me get this straight. You've got a research business. You do the selling, you do the research. And I'm like, yeah. He said, well, I can't sell your company. There's, there's nothing to sell here. It's worthless. And I left that meeting feeling about an inch tall. I mm-hmm. was going in thinking it was worth a lot. And I left feeling like I'd made all the mistakes in the, in the book. And anyways, I spent two or three years reshaping that business. We, we created a subscription model uh, focused on one thing, hired salespeople, et cetera. It ultimately was acquired by a New York Stock Exchange listed company. So it had a sort of happy ending to the, to the story. But that really, that meeting in Perry's office kicked off my journey to really trying to understand 
what drives the value of a company, uh, you know, going back to the whole point about starting with the end in mind, if you begin uh, your journey knowing how the movie ends, I think you build a much better business. It's interesting you say because it flashes me back to my banking career and 15 years in finance working with all sorts of businesses at different stages of their life cycle, but all very much focused on the numbers. And to your point, one of the common mistakes and why I do what I do is less about the value to sell, but the succession planning around leadership bench strengths and the human side of business. But you talked there and you mentioned that uh, it was a, a common mistake that you build it all around the founder without thinking about the future. But let's even just start with the basics of entrepreneurialism. It seems like it's everywhere. Everybody's starting a cottage industry. Everybody's got the next unicorn startup. Is entrepreneurial capabilities, desires, dreams, is it actually that new based on your research? Well, I, I think right now we are definitely at a stage where there are a lot of entrepreneurs that is an aspiring, you know, universities offer entrepreneurship as a, as a credit uh, major now in some cases. I think it is, it, it is a, a very uh, attractive field to get into. What we've seen through some of our research is that there are three different types of entrepreneurs. We call them mountain climbers, freedom fighters, and craftspeople. Okay. And and knowing which one you are, I think, can really help you. A mountain climber is motivated by growth. So think Elon Musk, Steve Jobs. Uh, you know, they want to literally take on the world, and so they are motivated by growth, achievement, and competing. Freedom fighters, by contrast, are motivated by independence. So they don't want to create the next Tesla, the next Shopify. They they want to create a business that serves them, that that can thrive without them doing all the work, that allows them to decide when to work, what to do, who to work with, and gives them the ultimate in freedom. The third group is actually the largest, and it's called craftspeople, which is made up of people who are motivated by mastery, which means that they don't really want to start a business. They, you know, the U.S. Census Bureau and, and, and the IRS think they own a company, but they don't really. They are self-employed individuals. They're the massage mm -hmm. therapist. They're the copywriter. They're the photographer. They file a, you know, a, a business tax return, but they're not really businesses in the way we think of transferable assets. They have jobs that are dressed up as businesses. And they're motivated by being the best photographer, the best copywriter, the best massage therapist, not necessarily to build some, some big business. And so I think, you know, understanding which of those three buckets you fall into is really good self-awareness before you even start a business, because I think it can help you make sure you're building a satisfying career as an entrepreneur. Is it always as clear cut that it's only one bucket or is it like a Venn no. diagram? There's an intersection. You're right. It's it's very much a Venn diagram where there's an intersection. I would think about it in terms of themes. We all have a little bit of all three in us, mm -hmm. but there are points in the road where one dominant theme would, would, would override the others. Let me give you an example. So if you're building a business and uh, you reach a point in the fork in the road where in order to continue to grow it, you need to bring on outside capital, uh, mm -hmm. their investors, share equity, bring on a private equity group, whatever. When a freedom fighter reaches that inflection point, they will slow down. They will not give up equity. They will control 100% of the company with them or a family trust or their, you know, their, their, their spouse and, and intentionally slow down because for them, freedom trumps growth. 
freedom trumps being on the front page of the newspaper, so to speak, right? Whereas a mountain climber reaches the exact same fork on the road and they will give up a little bit of equity. They want to be independent as well, but they will give up a little bit of equity because for them, growth trumps independence. Being known as achieving something really tremendous is much more important to them than 100% ownership and control. So it's those inflection points that we see the dominant theme start to take mm-hmm. hold. It's interesting you talk about those inflection points because, again, I'm reflecting on the career and the executive coaching that I'm giving to leaders right now. And those inflection points, you talk about the freedom fighters who slow down. And then you talk about the mountain climbers and their inflection point. But for them, I assume it's more about the, but it's a false summit. The inflection point actually reveals the false summit that by letting go of control of this summit, I now get to go and reinvent myself. Elon Musk being a great example of now let's go on to the next challenge yeah. and so on. So yeah. when you're, you're working with leaders, how much of it is almost psychology? They come to you with a, I think the time is right, but you're also then coaching them in how to let go, but also redefine their value from the baby that they've sunk heart and soul into that they're now handing over to you. And of course, there's a little of a tug of war there of, am I really ready to let go or not? Yeah. I mean, my day job, I don't actually coach individual uh, business owners specifically. I run a value builder, which you mentioned in your introduction, Mm -hmm. which is a practice management software, but we do do a lot of research in this area. Uh, One of the things that I think might be helpful for a lot of entrepreneurs is to think of their role as parents, because I think this really speaks to the transition that you're describing where they've got to give up and they've got to feel a way to to kind of get the business to thrive without them. And again, many entrepreneurs listening to this will be parents in their own personal lives. Mm-hmm. And I think as parents, you know, you think about your what you want for your kids. You know, some people want their kid to go to Harvard or you know be the quarterback of the football team or whatever. I, I actually don't think that's the aspiration for most parents. I think for most parents, me included, you know, I would love for my kids to be you know, functioning, independent, happy, functioning people in the world. And, and that's my highest aspiration for them, that they they can kind of move out and 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 succeed on their own terms. And and I think, you know, when they're wallowing away in the basement on the fourth hour of Fortnite video games, it's kind of like it's hard to realize that that's that's gonna happen. But hopefully they they get there. And I think in many of the same ways, if you're running a company, you should think of yourself as the, the CEO, as, a, as almost like the parent of your organization. The goal isn't necessarily to build the greatest, biggest business. It really should be to build something that can live without you. In much the same way, a parent's goal is to create a child who can succeed on their own terms without you holding their hand. I think that's a great parallel for the role of parent CEO. I think it's it's a different way to think about it. You know, we're we're indoctrinated and socialized as entrepreneurs to focus on top line revenue growth, right? Mm-hmm. It's the Inc. 5000 list. It's the 5000 fastest growing companies. And I think that serves a purpose, but it actually disserves us in some ways. It, 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 it focuses on top line revenue, whereas in many cases, people would be better served to think of themselves as the parent of their their company and that their goal is to is to get it to become independent. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that continually reminds me is the uh, like analysts and their continual drive for upward trends, whereas a sustainable business is one that is scalable. It has systems and processes, and sometimes you have to invest and go slower in order to go faster next year and making those strategic trade-offs in how and when you grow your business. 
So as you look at the data that you've collected over the years, mm-hmm. what are some of the either nearsighted mistakes that people, leaders are not seeing that indicate that their business is not yet ready to sell or ready to survive beyond them? Yeah, I mean, one of the big ones is recurring revenue. You know, most business models still to this day are based on a transaction business model, which requires in many cases, the owner to run out, make a sale, do the work, and then redo it all again the next month. Mm -hmm. And it is this sort of hamster wheel to nowhere, this treadmill to nowhere, where what the most valuable businesses are doing is shifting to a recurring revenue model. So if they are uh, SEO consultants, search engine optimizations consultants. They're not just doing one-off projects. They're billing for their time on a long-term contract. If they are, you know, I heard a, a great example. In fact, I, you know, the book I wrote called The Automatic Customer includes this as, as one of the first stories. It's a company called H. Bloom. They're in the business of selling flowers, but instead mm-hmm. of selling flowers on transaction, like at a flower store, they decided to sell flowers on subscription to hotels who want to have that mm-hmm. prestigious image. The average lifetime value of an H. Bloom subscriber is like $4,500, whereas the average transaction at a flower store is $50. Yeah. And so it, it totally revolutionizes the business model. So I think that's one area where a lot of owners can really think about how to maximize their value. It would be through recurring revenue. And again, it also helps serve the business to be less dependent on the owner generating all the sales every month. So how do I find out and diagnose where I am on the different levers that I could pill, um, pull in order to, say, check whether SkyTeam is that sustainable business that's ready to sell? Yeah, I mean, go to valuebuilder.com would be the best place to do that. You can go through our diagnostic questionnaire. Yeah. It, gives you, it gives you a score on eight sort of factors that are important to, to acquire. That's probably the best uh, the best place to, uh, to to go. You know, another one that, that comes up a lot is something we call the Switzerland structure. And mm. it's inspired by the country of Switzerland, obviously, where, you know, it's in landlocked Europe. It's, you know, Italy, Germany, France is kind of, you'd think anyone who would join the European Union or, you know, use the Euro currency would be this tiny little, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah. neither no. of those things happen, right? Because they're obsessed with this kind of notion of, of independence, not cozying up to any one geopolitical kind of faction or, or constituency. And so we give the name the Switzerland structure for those businesses that are independent of any one customer, employee, or supplier. Because oftentimes businesses become dependent on one of those three. And if they are dependent on a single customer, employee or supplier, they tend to be worth much less to an acquire. I mean, you, I, I just did an interview for Built to Sell Radio with a guy named Adi Pinar, South African guy who built a great business, an email marketing software, but he sold it through the Shopify app store. And so as customers learned about Shopify, they would learn about his app as an add-on effectively. Well, Shopify, as you know, has grown through the roof uh, and therefore his app as an ex- by extension, you know, the mm-hmm. rising tide lift all boats is also growing. But when it came to acquiring the company, the acquirers looked at it and said, yeah, but what are you without Shopify? Mm-hmm. And, and so it discounted his valuation to some extent. Uh, again, you can't be too dependent on a single customer employee. In this case, in the case of the AD Pinar example, a supplier or a platform, if you want mm-hmm. to think about Shopify platform in that way. So the Switzerland structure is one of the other big drivers that we see businesses oftentimes fall short on. So you mentioned eight factors earlier on. Can you mm-hmm. lead us through a few of those so we can understand how those impact 
business success today, but also that future plan um, for the organization. Yeah, we've already touched on a couple. So recurring revenue, Switzerland structure are two of them. Another one we've already talked about, but not labeled is called hub and spoke. And it's oh. referring to the owner's dependency. In other words, how how dependent the company is on the owner themselves personally. That's called hub and spoke. And we sort of addressed mm -hmm. that already. Growth potential is a fourth. So it's common for a lot of entrepreneurs to think about the value of their company uh, and they want to be sort of acknowledged for what they've done in the past, right? Like for me, when I went to see Perry Mielli, you know, I, I wanted to be acknowledged for the client list I'd built and the profitability, et cetera, et cetera. What he and others ultimately educated me on was that for an acquirer, think of you're just, you've just kind of run a marathon, right? Like you're just willing your way to the, the 26 mile for the acquire. They're actually towing the start line of their journey. So you may have gotten your business to a million in sales, 5 million, 10 million in sales for them. They want to understand, okay, so what's the future? How do we, because mm -hmm. they're just starting their, their race. And for many of us who've run one business for decades, we become sort of, uh, you know, the blinders are on myopically focused on what mm -hmm. we've done in the past. Whereas if you think about a private equity group or a strategic acquire, what they really need to understand is how do we take your business and, and, and put a zero on the, on the, on that. And that's, growth potential. So that's another one of the, the eight drivers. So 2020 was the ultimate cocktail shaker for many businesses. And I can see <laughs> yeah. examples as I think about the leaders I'm working with, where that reliance on the single platform, single supplier, single revenue source, whatever it might be, has really hurt their business. And in the others where because of the strength of the relationship, they were able to hunker down together and weather the storm. But what are you seeing in the data and what you're hearing in terms of the impact of COVID on business owners in general? What do you see as some of those uh, trends that are going to impact into the years to come? Yeah, the pandemic has been crushing for service businesses in particular. You know, technology businesses have thri thrived in many cases, manufacturing companies, depending on the industry, have, have done okay. But service businesses where there's the human element, anything, professional services, personal services, in many cases have been devastated by this pandemic. So it, it has been a tale of two worlds in some ways. What we're seeing just by the data, you know, when we, when when a business owner comes into Value Builder, we, we give them a, like an intake questionnaire. And we've had something like 60,000 businesses take this questionnaire now. So we kind of look at the data mm -hmm. and we looked at it prior to March, 2020. And then the eight months subsequent to March, 2020, just to kind of get a sense of sort of the before and during pandemic experience, mm -hmm. two things popped out for us. The first is that business owners have moved forward their sell by date by about 20%. They're planning to sell 20% sooner. The second one is, maybe a slightly more nuanced or less obvious. And that is that the intention to pass their business down to their kids or to a, a, another manager has dropped through the floor. And in lieu mm. of that, we're seeing a much bigger increase in the proportion of people who plan to sell to a third party. It's now up over 60%. And again, this is quantitative data. We don't have the qualitative understanding of that, but my guess is that it's uh, you know, it's been incredibly stressful mm -hmm. 18 months. And I think a lot of people just want out and they don't necessarily want to pass an albatross, you know, the stress onto their kids or to their management team. And so they want out at the highest uh, bid. And so 
the pandemic has had, I think, a profound impact on a lot of owners' psyche. Uh, you know, I, I just interviewed for Built to Sell Radio a couple, you know, founding couple, Dave and Carrie Kirpin. Uh, they got to the end of 2020 and and looked at themselves and just said, "We're exhausted." Mm-hmm. And for the first time in their in their journey as entrepreneurs, they decided to sell. And they went through a process and had a very successful outcome. But it was the pandemic uh, and the realization that you know 90% of their wealth was tied up in their company. Mm-hmm. And we talk a lot about this thing called the freedom point, which is when the, the sale of your company, along with the assets you built outside of your company, would garner a nest egg large enough to live effectively for the rest of your life. And when you reach that point, it's not necessary that you have to sell at that point, but it is worth, I think, pulling up out of the day-to-day, maybe going on a retreat or whatever, and really thinking about, are, am I willing, do I want to risk what I've sort of craved for many years, which is financial freedom, which is available to me if I sell, for the next tranche of growth, which may actually not motivate me. You know, I think it's Warren Buffett who said, uh, I'm, I may be butchering the uh, the phraseology, but I think he said something to the effect of, you know, it's crazy to risk what you want for something you don't. Mm-hmm. Again, for most, many entrepreneurs, particularly freedom fighters, like they aspire for financial freedom, the, the ability to kind of work when they want on their own terms. And if they sold their company, many would have that, but they, through inertia and, and habit, continue to run their company for decades. And then the next pandemic happens and the value of their business drops and they can't sell. And so I, I just think it's worth pulling up when you reach that freedom point and saying, do I want to continue to have all my chips on the table? And I see that with the executive leaders that I'm coaching right now. You talked about the stress and anxiety, the exhaustion, that whole the sunk cost attitude of, well, I've been doing this for X number of years, I've got to keep going. You know, there are brighter times just around the corner. And for many of those companies, there will be because they have the teams to do it. But for others, the reality is no, it's dark clouds. So I'm curious because I had a mental image and it's uh, of, okay, so we've got the venture capitalists, we've got private equity, we've got another organization that might want to buy the company, all circling now. Are you sensing then that we're about to go on a uh, organizational ownership transfer frenzy? Is there appetite to take on businesses that may be plateauing or struggling as a result of the pandemic? What what happens next? Yeah, it's a great question. There's a lot of a lot of dynamics mm. going on. So right now, there's two big macroeconomic factors happening. So one is that interest rates are at emergency levels. They're historic lows still, although they're up a little bit, they're still very, very Mm -hmm. low in historical terms. Most acquirers, private equity groups, individual investors are fueled by debt. They make the deals make sense. The ROI comes together through debt. And so as long as debt is very cheap, there are going to be lots of acquirers out there. And so it's a a very vibrant M&A market right now. The second dynamic is more political, in fact, and in particular in the United States, not necessarily in other jurisdictions, but in the United States, there's a big legislation on uh, about to take shape that will affect capital gains taxes. Mm. And so if that were to pass and capital gains were to be more penalized or, or you know taxed at a higher rate, you're going to see a huge rush of entrepreneurs trying to get out before that uh, mm-hmm. effectively happens. So I think those two 
uh, driving forces are to some extent offsetting one another right now. Interest rates making it really a seller's market because they're mm-hmm. so low. But at the same time, there's a flood of businesses going on the market right now because people want to avoid that capital gain. So, and in fact, it's I think they're offsetting one another. Uh, those are just macro kind of economic environments that has nothing to do with you know the business itself. I, you know, I think most entrepreneurs would be best served to sell their business when you know, the, the, the business is on a roll, it's succeeding, regardless of what's happening in the macroeconomic environment. Because like any asset class, if you sell out of your business, you got to put the money somewhere, right? Like you can't stick it under your mattress. And most of the assets that you might buy, commercial real estate, uh, vacation property, uh, you know, uh, stocks in Microsoft, they're all being propped up by the same economic factors. And so, you may sell at the top and you're likely to buy at the top as well. And equally, you may sell at the bottom and buy and have the opportunity to buy everything at a discount. So I wouldn't get too obsessed about what's going on in the macro environment, although right now it is a, an interesting time. I would really more focus internally on like when you've got those eight drivers we talked about earlier kind of optimized. That's a great time, regardless of what's happening in the macroeconomic environment. So what makes for a successful exit? Is your advice don't go it alone and make sure that as a business leader, as a business owner, you have somebody dispassionately guiding you along the way? Or is this something that I as a leader can do on my own? What do you see? Yeah, look, you you definitely want a great advisor, in particular, a great M&A advisor to, to lead you through it. But I actually think there's a step before that, which is a little bit more kumbaya, a little bit more people-centric, but I think is a critical, important sort of thing to do, which is identify your pull factors as an entrepreneur. We refer to these things called push and pull factors. And push factors are everything that kind of frustrates you about your business. And in fact, think of, you know, a force pushing you out of your company. So that Mm -hmm. these days it would be, you know, uh, demanding employees or, you know, overly over-regulation by the government or, you know, like you know, competitors, et cetera, all the things that are frustrating you about your company. Those are push factors, giving you sort of a a push out of your company. Pull factors are things you're excited to go do next. And, you know, write a book, uh, run a marathon, start another business, uh, get involved in uh, philanthropy, whatever, travel, you know, et cetera. We have found, again, statistically, we've done research with owners one year after selling. And what we found was the, the ones that are most satisfied with their exit actually were not focused exclusively on the value of their company. Mm-hmm. They had done a lot of thinking on the pull factors. In fact, their pull factors outweighed their push factors. There were more pull factors than push factors in their reasons to sell. And so I think, yes, you should have an M&A professional running the process. You don't want to do it on, on your own. But but even before you get them involved, I would really sit down with a white piece of paper, blank, you know, go to a, a lake somewhere on your own and really think <laughs> about like, what are you excited to go do next? I'm reminded of a, a guy I interviewed on Built to Sell Radio named Sean Oshman. He, he was based actually near where you are in Colorado, you know, landlocked mm-hmm. uh, Colorado. On his 39th birthday, Sean woke up and said, I want to live on a sailboat. By my 40th birthday, I want to live on a sailboat. Yeah. Again, he's in, in Colorado. But there's no water within miles. I can vouch for that. No ocean here in Colorado. Yeah. And so, so Sean's running this little IT services business, a couple million dollars in revenue, and he and he gets a broker. And 
They get him a few offers. I think he got 2.6 times SDE, which is an expression of profit that brokers talk about. I think 2.6, something like that. And I interviewed him on Beltsar Radio and I said, like, how do you feel about that? And he's like, I'm like, thrilled. And I was like, yeah, but 2.6 times. I mean, it's not like hitting it out of the mm-hmm. park. It's not like a home run. It's sort of a solid single, but it's not, you know. And he said, yeah, but I live on a sailboat. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I, I was always, I'm always reminded of that because, you know, I run a company called Value Builder. I mean, like my obsession is like, how do you maximize the value of your company? But in many cases, that's not necessarily the recipe for satisfying exits. In many cases, it's, it's, it's getting clear what your version of living yes. life on a sailboat is. And I think that's key. I mean, I use in the leadership programs that we do, we're doing a culture change right now. You start Googling even just those keywords and you literally get billions of results. There's plenty written about what does success look like through other people's lenses. And I think that's where a lot of the stress and anxiety or guilt comes in because I'm not living up to your definition of success or how much money I should have made from my business when I sold it. But to your point, when you define your own measures of success, the what next, the sailboat, then it was a win for him on his scorecard. And that's all that matters. I appreciate that. Thank you, John. So as we come to the end of our time together, how can people learn more about the Value Builder program um, for the entrepreneurs who might be listening to this and thinking, oh, well, I'm curious, you know, where does my business lie in terms of the factors that you described earlier on? How do we learn more? I think just go to builttosell.com slash people. So for your team, we put together, your listeners, we put together uh, a little bit of a a gift package, if you will. Mm -hmm. the eight value drivers, a little video series on those eight factors. Uh, There's a a worksheet you can work through on the nine subscription models, figure out which one applies to you. Uh, And the Art of Selling Your Business workbook is there as well, which is sort of a sister companion to the the book. Uh, uh, So it's just builttosell.com slash people. Okay, John, I appreciate you, your insights and your generosity in sharing those resources. I'll make sure that along with all of your contact details are in the show notes but I wish you every ongoing success. And when's book number four coming out? <laughs> I think it's a trilogy. I think I better stop while I'm ahead. <laughs> All right. Thanks, more. Thank you, John. Thank you so much for joining Morag today. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. If you learned something worth sharing, share it. Cultivate your relationships today when you don't need anything before you need something. Be sure to follow Sky Team and Morag on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you have any ideas about topics we should tackle, interviews we should do, or if you yourself would like to be on the show, drop us a line at info at skyteam.com. That's S-K-Y-E team.com. Thanks again for joining us today. And remember, business is personal and relationships matter. We are your allies.